new series today. The book of Colossians. This little book, four chapters in the New Testament. And um, we're going to walk through it this fall. And I'll tell you more about it here in a minute. But first of all, let's go to the bookshelf. In fact, I'm going to walk over here, and I've got a little digital version for those of you who can't see very well. But um, here is the Bible. The Bible is like a library with 66 different volumes in it. And they are, they are written by over 40 different authors and written over a time span of over 1,500 years. And it is a magnificent, God-inspired work that we have. And along the way, we have two parts of the Bible. We have the Old Testament, and then we have the New Testament that starts here with these red books. And in fact, if you look at the screen, what you'll notice on the New Testament there is that those first five books are narrative books. They're history. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are the accounts of Jesus when he was on the earth. And after he ascends into heaven, we have the book of Acts and how the message of Jesus goes across the world. And uh, Luke, who I believe wrote the book of Acts, he's the one that's telling us the story. That is the narrative or the storyline of the entire New Testament era. The other books, you have Paul's letters, which are there on the top, 13 letters, unless you believe that he wrote Hebrews, in which case he's he says 14, but we can have that debate later. And then these other letters down at the bottom, which are written either by James or Peter or John or Jude. And then, of course, we have that last book that some of you are so afraid of called Revelation, which actually carries a blessing if you study it. And um, so we'll talk more about those books later. But right now, we're going to focus on Paul's letters. Why? Because Paul wrote the book to the Colossians. Here's my book of Colossians here, oversized so that you can see it. And um, I want to talk just uh, for a few minutes today about this book and kind of setting up kind of where it comes from and, and what's happening. Um, but in order to do that, it just makes sense to jump right into the first three verses, which will then help us to figure out how um, how to look at the background material. So if you have your Bible or your digital Bible, or you can just look at the screen, we're going to look at 14 verses this morning, probably at a semi-rapid speed. So put your ears on and get ready. Colossians 1, this is from the NIV. Colossians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you might read that and you go, what in the world? I don't know what all those words mean. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning then. Because we're going to talk first about Paul. Paul is this Christian killer who is going out and killing Christians. And he is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, is, he knows how to, how to hold the line. And he is a teacher of teachers. And yet Jesus encounters him on the road to Damascus, and he gets radically turned around, and he becomes one of the most passionate Jesus followers that we have in the whole of the New Testament era, the first century. And so he 
is called an apostle. What is an apostle? An apostle, this term was something for the empire that you would send an apostle, an emissary, an ambassador out to a foreign land that Rome had conquered. And then their goal was to make that place just like the kingdom. That they would bring the kingdom to that place. They would change the culture and the dress and the food and all of the things with giving a little bit of tolerance to worship practices. And we'll actually talk about that quite a bit in Colossians as there is an absolute uh, buy-in of tolerance for anything uh, spiritually. So Paul is an apostle. This is not as much a title as it is his task. That everywhere he goes, he's going to bring the kingdom to where he is. And he does an amazing job. So he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other words, he's doing what God wants him to do. We'll see the will of God here in a minute in his prayer. And Timothy. Timothy's a little brother, right? Timothy is this uh, young guy who is called uh, Paul's uh, devoted son, And Paul is a spiritual father to Timothy. Timothy's actual father was a non-Jew, a Gentile. I would be a non-Jew, therefore I'd be a Gentile. And his mother was Jewish. And so out of passion to make sure that they could reach both Jews and Gentiles, Paul actually had Timothy circumcised as an adult so that he would have maximum impact. Now, if you don't know what circumcised means, it means that you're having a little bit of an adjustment to your male anatomical parts. And it would be really, really, really painful because I'm imagining they probably didn't have all of the pain drugs back then. But this is how passionate these two guys are. I mean, Paul's probably more passionate than Timothy. Timothy's probably limping a little bit. But as he's going along, he's writing with Paul. These these letters are a team effort. So Timothy writes with Paul, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians with the help of Silvanus. So Timothy's a big part of the team. And oftentimes Paul makes sure to give honor to his team. He's not just a lone ranger. In the same way, we need to also not live this life as lone rangers, but make sure that we continue to gather community around us. So Paul and Timothy, they're writing. So in the first century, you would say, this is who it's from. This is how a letter works, right? So I don't know how long it's been since you've received a letter in the mail. Maybe for some of you, it's been, maybe you've never received a letter in the mail. You can think email, but that just doesn't seem like it makes sense. So this is who's writing. Timothy's our brother. Uh... And Jewish people, by the way, when they would see each other, they would call each other brothers. Verse 2, to God's holy people, his saints. We are called his saints. Those of us who have given our life to Jesus, we're set apart, we're holy. Ephesians says that we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. This finished work of Jesus has already taken place in our life, and so we are called holy ones. Paul uses this term a lot, almost in all his letters, to the holy ones in whatever city, in Colossae in this case. But then he adds the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. He's calling non-Jews brothers. 
What's going on here? I don't want you to miss this. This is how powerful the gospel is. When you give your life to Jesus and Jesus begins to transform your life from the inside out with the power of the Holy Spirit, even your prejudice and the way that you see people changes. He's calling non-Jews brothers. You don't do that. But Paul is inaugurating a completely new relationship between Jew and Gentile. And he writes a lot about this in his letters. They're in Colossae geographically, but spiritually they're in Christ. In the, um, in the Greek, there's this beautiful parallelism where these two things are both true. In Christ is a very powerful um, analogy that Paul uses for us being hidden in Christ. We're going to talk a little bit about that uh, next week as we talk about Jesus, the supreme head of his body. Now, so the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Why is grace and peace a big deal? Because grace is karein, which would be like kare, karein apostolos. It's like a greeting. Grace to you. It's the Greek. It's the Gentile greeting. Peace is shalom. That's the Hebrew greeting. What is he doing? He's showing we are all one in Christ. There is no Jew or Gentile. This is going to be very important later in the book as we see this mixing of different traditions, sorcery, magic. Oh, it's very exciting. Sorcery, magic, Jewish stuff where they're being ultra spiritual, religious nuts and everything in between. So where is Colossae? Well, I'm glad you asked. There it is right there. That just cleared it up for you. So this is modern-day Turkey. Uh, it's also called Asia Mar Minor. You see it in red there on the map, Colossae. Um, this gives you a little idea. It's in this cool Lycus River Valley. It's about 100 miles inland from a place called Ephesus. If you have read uh, the letter to the Ephesians, that's the letter to Ephesus, which is in that general area. Also, those, uh, those little red dots are actually where the churches, where Jesus is sending letters to the churches in Revelation in uh, the first few chapters of Revelation, that's where they are. They're very close to Colossae. In fact, so close that Laodicea is about 10 miles away. Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae are all just in this little triangle. So they're, they're sharing a lot of merchants and different things. This is also on a, on a main east-west road. And many ancient historians before Christ even said that Colossae was one of the most important cities in its area. And so, this is kind of what it might have looked like. These are wood carvings and, and, and things from the 18, 1800s that were, were drawn, imagining what it looked like. You can see the Honaz Mountains. Here's what it looks like today. You see that green mound? That's Colossae. Yep. And then there are a couple little stones there. I showed you a little, couple little stones there just so you can see that there are a few things showing. So, I'm a big Bible nerd. I love to know, like, what's happening now. And so I began internet searching, and I, you know, gosh, have they dug up Colossae yet? Guess what? This year, they started digging up Colossae. And, um, and so, if you're a part of my text line, and I'll show you the number in a little while here, uh, you can sign up 
for the text line and I'll make sure that I send you a link. It's one of my professors from seminary talking about the importance of what we might find at Colossae. If you're a Bible nerd like me, you will love this video. So it's the guy that's digging it up as well as my professor explaining why this might be important as we dig up and understand more about what's hidden there under the ground. So fun. So just one little historical fact or cultural fact before we just get on with it because I there's just too much to say in one day. I'll just sprinkle it in along the time. Um, th it, they were all about angels in this area. All about angels. They would pray to angels. They would ask angels for protection. They would have amulets that they would wear that they found, we found in the ground. They believed that if you got in this, uh, this bubbling water here that you'd be healed. Does that remind you a little bit of, of the, the story where Jesus is at the pool? And the man says, but the angel stirs up the water and I got to get in first so I can get healed. This is not just localized to, this, to, to Jerusalem. This is everywhere. They're believing that water has this healing property, something powerful about it. Um, they specifically are all about the archangel Michael. And they believe that Michael actually took his sword or his spear and he punched, punctured the ground. And you'll see this picture right here. See this, uh, how this river literally goes into the ground and it comes out in a different spot. And they believe, you know, the, the lore is that that the angel has, has pierced the ground. And the idea that this is, this is a supernatural place. And so there was all of this um, mystery around healing, around angels, around what angels could do or not do for you, or what, how they could protect you, or how you could curse somebody by praying to an angel. All very mixed up and crazy. Some of us are reading this book called The Unseen Realm. And if you are reading this book, I'm about ready to get the, the, the next group meeting together. So this is the time to text the word unseen to that, to that number, which is my text line. By the way, if you want to just sign up for the text line, you can text the, the word encourage to that number. And then um, we can get you signed up. Um, but the things that we're reading in The Unseen Realm are very much attuned and what's happening here in Colossae. There is a lot of weird stuff going on and they're thinking and praying and counting on these supernatural forces. So that's the first two verses. I promise the rest of it goes actually quite a bit faster. We're going to be here forever. No, we're not. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Let's stop right there. Jesus Christ is mentioned four times in five verses. He is the central, central figure of that entire 66 books, either looking forward to him, talking about him, or reflecting back on him. And so here we have, we thank God, the Father of our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, this morning is going to be all about prayer. Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. So, a couple little highlights here. He is praying and part of his praying has thanksgiving built into it. Just want you to notice that. He's heard of their faith and love. Now, if you follow Gaylord around all the time like I do, you will know that these two things show up in almost every book of the New Testament. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for one another. 1 John 3.23 talks about those two things the clearest if you want to look up another verse. So they've heard about their faith. Now in Acts 19, it says that the gospel went 
throughout all of Asia Minor. So, I mean, it's just like wildfire. We know that from Acts. And so there is this sense of, man, we've heard that you've embraced Jesus in Colossae there, that little town, which actually was quite big, maybe 25 to 30,000. That's what does the estimates around the first century. So, that faith and love, that spring from hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have heard in the true message of the gospel that's come to you in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as been doing since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. A couple things here. So we have faith, love, and hope. Anybody know where else you find these three verses? 1 Corinthians 13. But now abides faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. But has he lost his mind? Because in this verse, faith and, and love are actually sourced from hope. He can do that, by the way. So how are faith and love sourced by hope? What kind of hope is this? This is not, I hope the Giants start winning or else they're not going to make the postseason, right? There's a lot of hoping going on at my house. And my friend Veronica said I can borrow her faith for the Giants, but I, I, it's waning, right? This is not the kind of hope. This is a, that was a joke, okay? I'm like, what, what is he talking about? This is not the kind of hope we're talking about. What kind of hope is this? It says, the hope stored up for you in heaven. If you're a Jesus follower... You're not afraid of death because you know your hope, your eternal place is secure. And by the way, heaven's going to be so much better than you think it is. However you think it's going to be good, it's going to be better than that. We fear, fear the afterlife and fear heaven or, or anything afterlife because we don't think it's going to be very fun. Oh my goodness. That for a different day. So we have this hope. And we've heard, already heard about this in the true message of the gospel. This is the word of truth, is the, is the phrase, literally. Sometimes the NIV kind of hides things because they're trying to make it more understandable. The word of truth. Truth is so important. And in this day of tolerance, one of the things that I'm learning about Colossae in the first century was they're all about tolerance. There's no absolute truth. You can do whatever you want to whenever, whatever, however. So I think that's one of the beautiful things about this book is it points us back to the truth. By the way, Jesus said, you know, the truth and the truth will set you free. And it's come to us, this message, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. I just talked about that from Acts 19. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it, and you truly understood God's grace. Verse 7. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So he's the storyteller. He's the one that's come to Paul and said, hey, we're going to tell you all about the Colossians. By the way, I don't think Paul's been to Colossae before. Why? Because, well... 
Because of this, Colossians 4, I'm skipping ahead, verses 12 through 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's here too while I'm writing this. He is always wrestling in prayer for you. Oh, so good. If you're going to pray, you wrestle in prayer. This isn't like, Lord, bless him, and you get on with it. You keep praying until finally you feel a peace. Does that mean sometimes you pray for a long time? Yeah. And it's okay, by the way, to have your prayers not be that fancy or to say the same thing over and over. He's okay with that. If you don't know how to pray, help Lord. Great prayer. Works, all, works for me all the time. He's wrestling in prayer for you, Colossians. Why, why is he wrestling? What is he praying for? That you may stand firm in all the will of God, what God wants you to do. Mature and fully assured, not lacking confidence and wondering and worrying, but being assured. And I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Epaphras is not just loving his city, he's loving his region. He says, you know, the people up in Chester, they actually matter to God. We don't just say, oh, well, they're just going to have to figure it out. No, we say, is there something that you need because we want to give it to you? So he's come to tell Paul what's up. And in fact, Paul even says uh, in Philemon here, one more thing, by the way, this is the same audience that's receiving this book. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in an answer to your prayers. In other words, I'm hoping to finally visit you. But Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends you greetings. It appears that Epaphras is the one that's planted this church. He probably came to Christ in Ephesus or around that area, and then the gospel moved through that whole Lycus Valley, and it just kept on sweeping up. So we've got churches in places like Laodicea and Colossae. Very important cities on the road to the east where you would have lots of traffic and lots of opportunity to encounter people and to tell them about the gospel. And now you're going to see the longest sentence ever. Paul, it, for those of you who are English teachers or you're in English, you're students and you're taking English, this is not the way this usually works. But in Greek, this is how he did it, all right? So I'm going to read this to you and then we're going to break it down and it will make a little bit more sense. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, Colossians, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. We're back to his will again, what God wants. Through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. In other words, it's not going to be your wisdom. It's going to be God's wisdom that he gives. So that... You may live a life worthy of the Lord, reflecting him, and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. <gasps> That's a lot, right? First of all, we do have a sentence before the longest sentence, and that is, we've not stopped praying for you. This is a sense of continual prayer. 
I'm just continuing to pray. And you think, well, doesn't he stop to like eat and stuff like that? Sure. But the idea is that your entire life is there's this conversation going on between you and God. And so, and that's why most of the time my prayers are pretty short. Because I had a lot of other things going on. And look, Lord, I'm praying for that person right now. Hey, I'm just, oh, we need a little help. Oh, there's a siren. Okay, Lord, whoever they're going to, I, help, 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 Lord. Okay. I ran into somebody in the lobby today. They were telling me about something going on. I'm like, you know what? Let's stop and pray right now. Right now is the best time to pray. Not later, not, I'll pray for you later. And then you'll feel guilty the next time you see him because you forgot to pray. And you're like, oh, that's right. Lord, help him. I prayed for you. Don't do that. If you pray once, the Lord will remind you later again. We've not stopped praying for you. This continual commitment to pray. Some of you are so afraid to pray out loud. And I'm, I am praying for you that you'll get past that. Why? Because the simplest prayers are the most beautiful to me. Actually, when it's like, oh, Lord, you're so huge and I'm almighty God. I don't want to hear King James English. I don't want to hear something fancy because it doesn't feel real. The best prayers oftentimes were when I was street pastoring. And they're like dropping cuss words in the middle of things that they're asking God for. And I'm like, can you do that? Is that legal? Is that Okay. That's where they're at. When you come to Jesus the way you are and and he'll love you and he'll listen to you. He'll be kind to you. He'll change you from the inside out. We have not stopped praying for you. So then there is this, what is he praying for? The knowledge of his will. And the good news is it's not about knowing more stuff. It's about the Holy Spirit surrendering the Holy Spirit so he could teach you because he is a teaching God. The Holy Spirit is the teacher. He's the one who reminds us of the words of Jesus. He's the one that leads us into all truth. That's what the Bible says. I'm going to go with the Bible on this. So this is what he's, he's going to give us the knowledge of his will, knowing what to do, what God wants us to do. And what would that look like? It would look like a life worthy of the Lord to please him in every way. Four traits of that life that he's praying for. Bearing fruit in every good work. Why we were created for good works. This is what Ephesians 2.10 says if you're taking notes. Secondly, growing in the knowledge of God. We are to be lifelong learners that we're always learning, always growing. We're never done. Even I think when we get to heaven, we will have that much more to learn forever. We were created to learn, not to coast. Third, being strengthened with all power according to the glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. You need strength because this world will beat you down and you know it. So praying for strength. And lastly, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Thanks God for the hope that I can have because of heaven. Thanks God that Jesus came and died for me so that I know that I know that I know that if I go out these doors and I get hit by a bus, Lord, I don't want that to happen. I know I'm going to be in heaven. I don't have to fear death. And therefore, I don't grieve death like the Gentiles do or those who are far from Jesus because I know it's just a see you later thing. So four things that he's praying for. Beautiful. And then um, three reasons. 
And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance. We just read that verse, right? Two, who he's, he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Oh, this is going to be so fun for the rest of the series to talk about this. Why? Because Jesus came to defeat the works of the devil. And we don't talk about that enough and we're not aware of it enough. But I'm here to tell you, I've experienced more spiritual warfare in the last eight weeks than probably any time in my entire life. If it could go wrong, it has gone wrong. Which means that this season is going to be especially wonderful. Because when you tick off a son of the living God, he just doubles down. And I'm believing the same thing for you. That in this season, as you understand how he's rescued you from the dominion of darkness, and he's put you in the kingdom of light, you begin to look at things differently. You begin to pray differently because you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, not going, Lord, if you could just, well, would you just, uh, I don't want to bother you too much. I don't want to pray from a place of poverty where I'm just hoping for a handout. I want to pray with confidence, not arrogance. I want to pray with faith. Sometimes faith looks like you would mistake it as arrogance. It's not that. It's not presumption. It's God loves me. And I know that he wants to do these things for me. I've told the story before, but I showed up to uh, this mountain in Ireland. That was the mountain where Patrick learned to pray. And I said, Lord, I, I, I've been waiting for this for a year to climb this mountain. I want you to take me deeper into a place of prayer. So I get there and it's snowing like crazy. I mean, like sideways. And the little Irish couple that I'm with is like, I don't think this is a good idea. And I said, oh no, my father loves me. I've been praying and thinking about this for a year. By the time I get to the top of Slemish, it will be sunny. I just said it. It wasn't arrogant. I didn't even think about it. It just flew out of my mouth. Why? Because my hope is stored up in something so much stronger, so much higher. I don't, I don't worry about the weather. I told him, I said, I don't care if it's snowing. I'm going up anyway. He says, all right, I'm going with you. And by the time we get to the top of Slemish, if you've been in my office, above the couch is the panoramic picture from that where the clouds have parted and it's completely sunny. Why? Because... This is the kind of faith that we can operate in. And yet, so many times that we pray from a place of lack and poverty, and we believe God, it's like almost like playing the lottery. If you could just, instead of confidently going after it. Why? Because he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he's brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So this is the first passage of our book. But just... Two quick application points as we close. Some of you are learning to pray. Some of you are like, I don't know, prayer seems really boring. Well, then you're not doing it right. We need to work on this, right? Because you're interacting with the living God who will actually put things on your heart and your mind to pray for. Like out of nowhere, you're like, I feel like I'm supposed to pray for this. Well, then just do it. What if it's not God? Okay. Probably is though. Usually the enemy doesn't tell you to pray for stuff. Actually, never does the enemy tell you to pray for stuff. So, I mentioned this earlier. The short prayer. Lord, help. Help, Lord. It's what you pray when you're getting into a car accident. Or any other time you need it. The short prayers, they're, they're easy. You got them. Secondly, the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> we sang it. 
We said it. I'm just reminding you of it. If you're like, but I want the words. Great, Google it. It's the first thing that comes up. Lord's Prayer. Boop. Any version you want. This is uh, this, this idea of acts. This is what we used last night at 10 Days of Prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. God, you're amazing. I'm so thankful for you. I, you're incredible. And you praise him for who he is and what he does, what he's done. Then you confess your sins. Lord, forgive me for these things. Thank you. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for showing up. Thank you in advance for answering prayer. Lastly, your, your laundry list, right? It's okay to have a laundry list. You're not bugging God. He's not bugged. You can have as long of a laundry list as you want. Making your requests known to God. Here are the things that I see in this passage. Praying regularly. Paul is committed, right? We even see Epaphras. He's like, he's not only praying regularly, but he's praying like with force. He's wrestling in prayer. He's getting after it. He's not quitting early. With praise and thanksgiving. There's a whole bunch of praise and thanksgiving in this passage. Praying for others, right? Not just praying for your own stuff, but having a heart to pray for others and what's going on in their life. And lastly, praying for spiritual development. And this is what we see in those four traits. Whether it's, you know, growing, uh, bearing fruit, growing in the grace, etc. A couple ways you can apply this. We've got 530 Pray every Wednesday in the fellowship hall. And it is such a sweet time. And if, especially if you're learning to pray, this would be a great environment for you. No one's going to say, why aren't you praying out loud? You just come. One of the ways that you can learn to pray is by sitting with others who are praying and just hearing what they have to say. You don't have to imitate anybody, by the way. There's no right way to pray. But 530 Pray is a great, great, great thing as we pray for our region, our 530 area code in Northern California. And lastly, I want to underscore 10 days of prayer. Now, uh, I've been at the last two nights. Tonight might be hard because we're going to be coming right off of the partnership dinner, so I may be able to squeeze over there for a little bit of the time. But otherwise, I'll, be, I'll get to be at nine of the ten um, days of prayer. And I want to challenge you to at least come to one or more of these. It's an hour of prayer. And um, they're happening at different churches. And as we reached out to pastors, I was surprised at how many pastors got right back. Yes, we want to do it. Yes, we want to do it. Yes, we want to do it. Why? Because this is what God's doing right now. He's raising up prayer in our region in all sorts of unique ways. And there was so much hope in my small group last night as I prayed with two other couples who I've known for years and years but go to different churches here in the city. They said, I just feel so much more hopeful that we're praying together. So I want to challenge you. There's a, there's a list. I think it's in your skinny. Uh, we have it on the website. Um, tonight will be at Grace. Um, but I want to challenge you. Come to the 10 Days of Prayer and especially come next Sunday night here because it'll be fun. There'll be different pastors up here leading different segments of prayer, uh, different worship pastors leading with Linda up here on the stage. We believe that the dome will be filled and I don't want you to miss that because I believe it's going to be one of those moments in our city that will be really powerful and really meaningful. So Jesus, teach us to pray. Help us. Help us to understand the simplicity of prayer, not to overcomplicate it, but to actually step into a place of new intimacy with you. Thank you that you lead us and guide us as we pray for one another. So root us, build us up as we learn from your word. I bless this congregation in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Amen.